0: We're finishing up today the book of Philippians, so you can turn to chapter 4. If you've missed any of these weeks, I would encourage you, those sermons are on are online at the website. Um, this book is just, is so rich with so much, and it's been really, really great for me as I've studied through it, and uh, I would encourage you to catch up. We called this series, The Gospel Changes Everything. We've studied through the first three chapters of Philippians. Today is chapter four. Um, some of the verses we've missed here and there, just to, so we could really focus on some of the things that we felt like God was really trying to share with our church. So as you go back through, go go take this book. You can read through it pretty quickly and, and, and listen for the things that God's trying to share with you. The, it really is true. The gospel changes everything. And today we're going to look at a few more things that the gospel does change. So, Um, We're going to start with verse 2. So if you want, go ahead and look right there. we got two ladies with weird names. But I'm going to work really hard to say those names correctly. Paul is writing. And remember, these are his good friends. We talked about that week one. The church there at Philippi, he spent... A lot of time there. These were very close friends of his, okay? These aren't just people where he came in, planted a church in a few weeks, set up some leaders, and left. These were very, very close friends of his. And so when he talks about and he says names, it's because these people mean a lot to him, okay? This is what he says. I entreat Euodia. How about that? I bet she had lots of guys wanting to take her out. And I entreat, listen to this one, Sintashi Sintishi. I looked online, so I know I said I'm right. Euodia and Syntyche, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So he's finishing up his, his letter here to the church, and he's written a lot of great stuff. And then in closing, he wants to wrap up some things. And when he had heard about how things were going at the church there at Philippi, one of the things he had heard about was these two ladies just weren't getting along for some reason. And this wasn't just a small deal, because if it was just a small deal, by the time he heard about it and then wrote and then they got the letter, it, you know, it would have been passed. So this was a big enough deal that he felt like he needed to address it. So there, there's this drama going on between these two ladies, Euodia and Sintashi. Can you imagine that there would be drama or conflict in a church family? That would never happen at Heritage, right? No matter what church you go to, no matter what you think about it, no matter how great it is or how good everyone is as far as close and being friends with each other, there's going to be conflict, right? because our church is full of people. We're sinful, we're selfish, we're prideful, we have our opinions about everything and some of us are louder at sharing those than others. And there's kind of there's got to be conflict. And so Is my time up already? <laughs> so so there's going we got conflict going on and it's going to be it's going to happen. So what Paul wants to do, he wants to address this, okay? We don't know what the conflict was. Uh, it doesn't say. Paul, to him, that wasn't the point, okay? So I, it was important to him because he said these two ladies, these weren't just people who were kind of a little bit involved in the church. These, these were leaders in the church, these two ladies. Paul says that they had labored side by side with him in the advancement of the gospel. Okay, these were these were not just, you know newcomers who were trying to start problems these were people these two ladies probably had been involved for a long time at this church and they were leaders they had been partnering in the gospel alongside paul when he was there and, and it was a, it was important for him to remind them hey be one in heart you are united in the gospel your names are written in the book of life he said he's trying to remind them of the big picture okay And he even says, for whatever reason, these two ladies couldn't figure it out on their own. He even asks a third party to come in and help figure it out. Remember, he says, yes, I ask you, true companion. We don't know who he was talking to, but whoever it was, help these women. And let's get this figured out so we can move ahead. Um, They need to have the same mind as Jesus. And so, what we have in common, there's going to be a conflict, but what we have in common is the gospel of Jesus. If we can't agree on that, then we're not going to agree on much. If we can remember the gospel, the gospel was the what? The good, good news, and what is the good news? Sometimes we just assume we know what we mean by saying the gospel, but the good news was that... Jesus died, rose from the dead, and then gave us an opportunity to be made righteous again, even though we didn't deserve it. That's good news to people who are on their way to hell, right? So that's good news. And in the gospel, he said, you guys are partners in the gospel. You owe You're partners in the gospel. You labored alongside of me for the advancement and the, the protection of the gospel, for the defense of the gospel. Figure this out, and let's move on. Who was right? You know, I bet Euodia, she really probably thought she was right, right? And Sintashe, she probably thought she was right. Well, Paul, he doesn't he doesn't go there. He doesn't let them know who he thinks is right. He just says, forget about that. Agree in the Lord. Agree in what you have in common. Agree in the gospel and for your future plans. Remember, we talked last week that when we have a A purpose, or the race that we're running, or the goal we're shooting for. When we're Christians, the gospel changes what that is, right? It's supposed to be future-looking. It's not supposed to be about me, mine, and now. It's supposed to be about God's kingdom, my future reward, those things ahead of me. That's why Paul kept saying he continues to run the race, even though he had done all these great things. He was always looking ahead, and that's what he's trying to remind these two people. So the gospel changes our conflict. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have conflict. But when you do have conflict, the gospel, if you're a believer, the gospel changes how you handle that. And when we can keep the main thing, the main thing, which is the gospel, everything else becomes peripheral. Does that make sense? Those other things seem to become a little bit smaller. But when we think that those things are the biggest deal and we've put the gospel and our purpose and the race we're supposed to be running on the back burner for a time... These other little things seem to make a bigger deal in our life. So if you're in the middle of conflict right now, I would ask you to ask yourself, where is the gospel in my priority list right now? Sometimes as Christians, we kind of go like this as far as what's important to us. Does that make sense? Have you ever been really excited about the gospel and then found yourself at another time in life not so excited about it, and that's kind of our pattern. Well, Satan, he knows when we're not so excited about the gospel, and that's when he attacks us. That's when a small conflict with maybe even a close friend and church family member becomes a big deal, something big enough that someone like a pastor would need to address. Okay, so the gospel changes our conflicts. We're going to move on. We're going to skip verse 4, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Look at verse 6 and 7. This is a pretty famous verse. A lot of you know this verse. We say it a lot whenever we get stressed. <laughs> so if you're really a stressful person, you might even have this verse like written on your mirror in the morning or something like that. This is what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've always said that I think one of the best benefits of being a Christian is rest. And I don't mean rest like getting to sleep in until 10 o'clock. I mean the rest that comes from, from knowing who your maker is, who's in control of things. The rest that comes from knowing that if God is for me, who can be against me? The peace that he's talking about here, that's what it comes from. And so if you're living in constant anxiety, Paul just wants to remind you, remember the peace that God will give you when you remember who he is and you give your anxieties over to him. Um, The answer to anxiety is not just simply trying not to be anxious, right? There's going to be times in life where we are anxious. You know, when I went to Nicaragua with Sydney, I got trapped in Miami, and Sydney went ahead and got on the plane and came home without me. I was anxious. I appreciate it. <laughs> that didn't happen on this trip. That was that was a time of anxiety for me. You know, I was in a small room with a few hundred people and I was the only one that spoke English, and I didn't know why I had been stopped coming into the country. And I thought maybe Sydney snuck something in my suitcase. To play a trick on me, I was anxious. So the trick here is is to not just say, "Okay, I'm never going to be anxious." That's silly. I mean, you know, if you have if you have kids, you're anxious. Okay, I know that now. I, I have two kids. They're eight and six, and I've been anxious for eight years. Actually, I've been anxious for eight years and nine months because leading up to it, I was anxious. So the trick is to not try to not be anxious. The trick is to, to turn over those anxious thoughts to Jesus, to talk to him. He loves spending time with you. Did you know that? Sometimes I think we get the wrong picture about God. Everyone that's out in the world that's running away from Jesus, I really believe that they've been introduced to someone who's not really Jesus. And that's why they're running away from him. If they knew the real Jesus that I know, they would run toward him with their problems, with their anxiety, with their troubles, because he longs to sit with his children and listen. As a father, I would never tell Ainsley, I don't want to hear about her problems. Would I? No. And our heavenly father, who's a much better father than I am, would never tell you, don't bring that stuff to me. I don't want to deal with your little problems. He wants to hear that. He wants to take it off of you and let you move ahead with peace. Listen to what he says again at the the end of that, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that so much further away from where we started in verse 6 with talking about our anxieties? That's that rest. That's that peace that comes. The gospel changes our anxiety. where will we go with our anxieties? If we merely keep them in our minds, if we try to deal with them internally, they're going to follow us along wherever we go. We'll have good days and bad, but mostly it'll just get worse and worse over time until we decide to let that go and give those anxieties to him. Let's look at verse 8. This is a really great verse. I remember my very first year to work for centrifuge camps, I was a worship leader, and they would give us a CD about six months, you know, in the winter time, and say, these are the songs we would love for you to play all summer long, which was okay, because some of them were good and some of them were terrible, but, but they would give us these songs, and the first year I did it, there was this song, and it was called Whatever, and I thought, great, whatever, but it was word for word, the words from this next verse, verse 8, and it's a fantastic verse. Have you ever thought about how many thoughts you have in one day? I was talking to my friend Clint in Poland the other day, and he had just looked this up on the internet, and he said, depending on which website you believe, we have thoughts between 3,000 and 70,000 every day. 3,000 to 70,000 thoughts, that's a lot of difference there, so I don't know what to think. But even if I think 3,000 things in a day, That's a lot of thoughts, right? Did you ever wonder if you could change your thinking? You ever ever think, I wish that I could change the way I think about this, or think about that, or think about this person? Do you ever wish that? Do you ever wish that someone else would change the way they think? Yeah, I do. Listen to what verse 8 says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If, if verse 6 is a reactive verse, you know, if I have anxious thoughts, I need to do this, then verse 8 is more of a proactive verse. Before I think anything, tell myself to think about these things. Okay, let's go through that list again. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, which also means admirable and maybe in your your Bible. If there's any excellence, think on these things, things that are worthy of praise, things that remind you of the gospel, things that remind you of how big God is. When you get in your car the first thing in the morning and you pull out of your driveway, instead of thinking about the frustrating time you're going to have right when you walk into the office. Look into the trees, look into the, the clouds, the sky, the things that remind you of how great and big your God is. Be thankful, thankful for the family you're leaving at the house or for the, for the kids that are at school or, or whatever's going on, reminding you of all the blessings that you have in your life. We're sometimes, we'll, we'll get into a, a, a rut or a habit of immediately thinking bad things. Sometimes we think bad things about ourselves, right? Sometimes we think, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not pretty enough. I'm just not financially wise enough. I'm just not whatever. Have you ever had bad thoughts about yourself? I have. You know, these things, the first word on that verse, it says, whatever is true. Whatever is true. Where does truth come from? Does anybody know? Huh? God's word, sure. If God decides what's true, then why would I not listen to what He says? God says, I'm a co heir with Jesus of His kingdom. God says, I'm His child, completely 100% loved and approved of. Remember this God is glorious, I don't have to fear others. Remember that? God is glorious, I don't have to fear others. He says, I'm a child of the King why am i concerned about what other people think or what maybe i think about myself i need to think about what's true and replace lies with truth one thing the bible does for us is that it helps us replace lies with truth satan he is the king of lies right the father of lies he runs around tells you lies tells other people lies about you he just is the he he can't even talk about truth he can't speak truth because he's such a liar that's what the bible says The Bible, when we read it, and we know it, and we learn who God is and his attributes, it helps us to replace lies with truth. So when you go about your day, and you realize, this moment, I'm believing a lie, then you switch it, and you say, what does God's word have to say about this? And then I switch, and I begin to believe in truth. Those are the things that I should think about when I wake up in the morning. Those are the things that I should think about when I begin to have conflict or anxiety, the true things. Another word he says in verse eight. Whatever is pure. Pure. What does pure mean? Anyone? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think specifically when this uh, in this verse is talking about pure like things that are moral. We're talking about morality. Anyone in here had an impure thought in the last week? Liars. Thank you, Charlie. (laughs) Truth teller. I would say that in this day and time, it is almost impossible for us to go through our days without having impure thoughts. Does anybody else struggle like that? From the stuff you see on TV or billboards or hear on the radio or see on the internet. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and sometimes we think, the way I'm going to handle that is I'm going to stop doing this. I'm just not going to look at that. Or I'm not going to talk to that person because they make me think impure thoughts. And so what it seems like is that we're constantly trying to defend ourselves. As the shots keep coming, we're defending them. We're defending them. Eventually, what happens? shot gets through, right? And we have these impure thoughts, and they lead to impure actions. What if we were to be not just defensive... But we were to be proactive also and play a little offense. What if we were to think about things that were pure and lovely and righteous? What if we were to move ahead and think about the gospel and remind ourselves on a daily basis of what Jesus had done for us? What if? You know, instead of always trying to wait until the moment where that impure thought is almost right there and then I go, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. What if I was moving ahead offensively? Proactively, on a daily basis to help myself think about the things that are true and just and lovely and pure and admirable, all these things that are excellent, things that bring God glory and praise. That's what you do. The gospel changes our thinking. So the answer to the question, can you change your thinking, is yes. You can change your thinking. You can begin to think like someone who's full of the Holy Spirit. You can begin to think like someone who's been who's been ransomed, someone who has something that they didn't deserve. You can begin to think that way. And so that's what Paul is saying here in verse 8. Think on these things. The gospel changes our thinking. The gospel also changes our perspective. Now this is important because I think a lot of times as Christians, we struggle with this. When you become a Christian, your perspective on a lot of things ought to change. They really should. And Paul, if we remember, is writing this letter from where? Prison in Rome. Things aren't going so good for him. This guy is 60-something years old. Remember we talked about this week one? He's been whooped and beaten and and all kinds of things have been happening to him. He's not some 25-year-old who's just pushing through all this. Okay, if anybody had anything to complain about or be anxious about, it was Paul. So we're going to back up now to verse 4. And what does he say? What's that first word? Rejoice. Say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Someone should write a song. Look what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And before we get to probably some of your favorite verses This is what Paul is talking about when I say the gospel changes our perspective. He's saying, no matter what your circumstances, the the demeanor of a believer, the demeanor of a child of God is joy. It's rejoicing. I've heard sometimes people say this, and I know what they're trying to say, but they say, God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy And we usually say that when someone's making a stupid decision because they say it'll make them happy, but it's completely going against what God really would want them to do. God does want us to be holy, but he also does want us to be happy. Paul is like the most joyful guy I've ever read about in the Bible. He is always joyful. I mean, think about how his life had been changed. Remember where he was? And he was on his way. Everything was going really good and everything, and then all of a sudden he meets Jesus and he's blinded. And then his life is completely changed because of this this face to face interaction with with the God of the universe. It changed his life. And Paul is joyful, and he's always saying it have joy. He said it in chapter one. He said, You guys are my joy because of the things that I hear about you. Everything is good and great. The advancement of the gospel, the defense of the gospel is because of my joy. When I hear about you guys doing that, it completes my joy. I write these things to tell you because it completes my joy. He's happy. He's joyful. He's in prison, and he's joyful. He says that he's learned whether things are good or bad, whether he has a lot of money or a little bit of money, whether he's got a buffet in front of him or whether he has no food at all and he's hungry, he has learned to be joyful in all situations, now that word learned is important because you may say well he was Paul you know he just was the apostle Paul he he was so good he knew how to do that I can't be like that this didn't come natural for him okay it didn't come natural for him he says two times in the verses we just read he says I have learned I have learned so if it's hard for you to go to Nicaragua for a week because you're not going to get to eat what you would like to eat you can learn to be content and joyful in that. You can. If it's hard for you to think about changing jobs and taking a pay cut because you feel like that's what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, you can learn to be okay with less money. You can. You can learn to have a lot of money. You can learn to have a a little bit of money. And let me say this about money. Sometimes we think that when someone lives on nothing. They live in a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment, and they live on $20 a week grocery budget that they're just really spiritual. Oh, they've given up everything. And sometimes we think that when people got, you know, a $700,000 home and nice, nice cars, and they're millionaires by the time they're 40, that they just must be very greedy. And and Paul is saying here, look, it has nothing to do with any of that stuff. God blesses us. God chooses what we have, what we don't have. He gives, us, he gives some to you. He gives some to you, some to you, some to you, some to me. And Paul says, I've had a lot. And Paul says, I've had a little. And no matter what the situation, I'm content either way. And that was the key. So how did he learn to be this way? And that's where we come to some of your favorite verse, verse 13. I, I bet a lot of you could say this memorized. It says, I can do all things through him. Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. Now, just for a second, I don't want to burst your bubble, but in case you thought that this meant that if you're a Christian, you can do anything without limitations, that's not what that means, okay? Um, Sometimes we hear people say, well, I can do anything, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God can do anything, okay? So don't, don't get me wrong. But this doesn't mean that just because you're a Christian, you somehow have some kind of new superpower that allows you to do everything in the world and that's here on earth and all those things. What Paul is saying in context of what we just read is that even if I'm rich, even if I'm poor, even if I'm hungry or have lots to eat, I have learned to be content no matter what my circumstances because I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength to do them. Does that make sense? He gives you the strength to learn how to be content. He gives you the strength to learn how to handle lots of money or handle not much money. He gives you the strength to do that. The problem is sometimes we don't look to Him for that strength. Instead, we, des- we depend on our own smarts, our own wisdom, our own experience, and then we find ourselves not content, not joyful, because we have gone to the wrong person to teach us how to be that way. We went to ourself or to some self-help book or to some self-help seminar to learn how to be content and joyful when the secret is in Christ who strengthens me. Are you with me? I can do all things through him. I think a key question for us is, am I content with, with what God's given me? I think that's a great question for, you, for us to ask. Because if I'm honest, there have been times where I've woken up and I wished I had something else. Have you ever wished that? Yeah, some people are starting to be honest. They think it's okay. Everybody else has been completely content 100% of the days of their life. I've never wished for anything. Just in case tomorrow you have one of those thoughts where you wish, let me help you out. The key is all those the 4Gs are so good. If you have if you don't know what the 4Gs are, go to our website and find the 4G sermon series and listen to them. God is great. I don't have to be in control. God is glorious. I don't have to fear others. God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. God is gracious. I don't have to prove myself. That's the that's the gospel. That's the good news to us as believers. That we no longer have to be concerned about whether or not I have a lot or a little. Whether or not I match up or measure up to my friends or my co-workers or the people that I wish would respect me. No longer do I have to go looking to satisfy the desires of my heart to, to this or this or that. Because Jesus satisfies me 100%. The problem is even as Christians sometimes we forget to think this way. We get bogged down with with our circumstances and the things going on around us, and, and we stop and we fail. Paul is saying our circumstances should not be what determines if we're joyful or not, should not be what determines if we are content or not, because your circumstances change every day. Who here makes more or less money than they did 10 years ago? More or less, either way. Your circumstance has changed. Who here has more or less family members in your family than 10 years ago our circumstances change people are born people die we gain money we lose money stuff breaks in our house sometimes stuff all of a sudden works when it didn't work in the past and you're like this is a great day if our joy and contentment is all dependent upon our circumstances we will have to have so much medication to get through life just to calm ourselves down, because we will be a complete wreck by the time we're 30. I'm not kidding. You laugh, but that's, that's, what, that's why people are so stressed and anxious. That's why so, so many people they, they go through life hoping that this is a good day because they don't know how to make it through a bad day. I remember a close friend of mine passed away. We were teenagers, and his family, they weren't believers. And and even though I was young, I was 17, I knew Jesus. And I didn't have a lot of answers. But I remember wondering, how does a family like that deal with the loss of their 19-year-old son when they don't have the joy of Jesus? I remember thinking that as a teenager. And I still think that. How how does someone who doesn't know the joy... Because the joy of Jesus isn't that your life on here, on earth, is going to be fantastic... I hope you know that. The joy of Jesus isn't that when you say yes to Jesus, all of a sudden you walk home from church that day and miraculously all your debts have been paid off by somebody. That's not the joy of Jesus. The joy of Jesus is that rest, that peace, that goes beyond any kind of earthly understanding. That's what he was saying early on in this chapter. It goes beyond earthly understanding it's not something that you can really write down and go God give me rest like this because it's something his rest and peace comes and it makes you feel so good that it's not even anything you could have asked for because you didn't know it was going to be that good and if you've ever experienced that rest and peace of him you know what I'm talking about and if you haven't It's because you're still trying to take on your own anxieties. It's because you're not looking to him for strength to be content in your situation. If you showed up this morning frustrated and upset about your circumstances, it's because you're not looking to the man who's in control to take care of those things and to take those burdens off you. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen, and it doesn't mean you're not going to be anxious. It just means what we do with them changes. God changes our perspective. The gospel changes our perspective. When I have a bad day, it's bad. But it's not terrible because I remember the gospel. I remember what's been done for me. And that's that proactive thinking that we're talking about. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, Philippians is one of the most encouraging. It's got all kinds of good things. It talks about people partnering together to defend and to and to advance the gospel. It talks about how we can think. It reminds us of God and His peace and the rest that He has for us. It's about working out our salvation with fear and trembling so we can shine like a star in the dark world. It's about never giving up but pressing toward the goal that we talked about last week. Never being finished. Choosing to run the race that has a heavenly reward, an eternal reward. That's what the book of Philippians is about. And why is it all about doing this? It's all about this because it's all about the glory of God our Father in Jesus Christ, and he would receive all the glory forever and ever and ever. We will stumble, we will we will fall and there will be hard times. But we remember the the promise that we read in chapter 1, that the God who began a good work in you will what? He will complete it. He began the work in you. He's going to complete the work in you. It's not on your shoulders. It's about turning our life over to Him, trusting in Him to do what He said He would do, and believing in the promise of Jesus May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that we've studied over the last month. We thank you that you have shown yourself through it reminding us of the gospel, reminding us of the price you pay for our life, and that we're partners with you in this gospel, that we have a purpose in this life, that our purpose, our goal, the race that we're running is not about success here on earth, but it's about building up your kingdom that's eternal, that's heavenly. You're teaching us how to keep our eyes on the real prize. You're teaching us how to turn over our anxiety and our our bad thinking to you and to think on those things that are true and honorable and lovely and pure. You're teaching us to be content. Father, my prayer today is that we would all individually as a church family be asking ourselves, am I content with what God has given me? And on days where we have to honestly answered that question with the answer no, that you would begin to change our thoughts, that we would think about you, to think about the glory of God, to remind ourselves about where we were before you found us and where you have brought us out of the darkness. And now we can be content, not because it's necessarily natural for us, but because we can learn that through you, we can deal with those things because you give us the strength to Help us to be content with what you give us. Help us to be content and and joyful. Would others around us see us as we rejoice in our life? Would they see the joy in us? And would it all point to you? Would there be something different about us? Would it not be determined on our circumstances from day to day? But when others see us, whether things are good or bad, and they would say there's something, there's a joy in us that's unexplicable, would you receive glory for all these things? We thank you for your word and for your guidance and your Holy Spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.